Well, I count it a great privilege to be here again this morning, and particularly to bring a biographical sketch of my good friend Ashiel Blaze. It is now two and a half months, just over, since he went home to be with Christ, which the scripture says is better by far. Trying to put this together uh, in such a short space of time means that there are gaps and sometimes the chronology earlier on in Ashiel Blaze's life is not clear to me. I've spoken obviously to his wife, I've spoken uh, to his friends, uh, particularly Pastor Stuart Olliott, who he was very close to when he first came to, uh, this, uh, to uh, Britain, and then to Pastor Jack Hampshire, who was co-pastor with him in Stratford for many years, and my own personal memories over the last 40 years. So I've made it as accurate as I possibly can, but I, I hope that I will be able to be faithful uh, to my friend. Ashil Blaise was born in Dominica, in the Caribbean, or Caribbean as you insist on pronouncing it, in 1941. He has an unusual name. He was an unusual man. He was to become a distinctive preacher and a man of God. He gave a brief testimony here a number of years ago, which I've listened to, but he didn't get very far in his life. Uh, after about an hour, he was only in, into the first uh, sort of 20, 30 years. But he described himself then as a country boy. Dominica was not one of the wealthiest parts of the West Indies. He was a country boy. He was one of a family of eight there were four boys and there were four girls. His mother died when he was 11 or 12 years of age. And that had a profound impact upon him. He was very distressed by the loss of his mother. His father instilled into him a number of principles regarding his conduct and we will see how that was important things that he was to uphold throughout his life even in the latter years of his life he would I would hear him say sometimes my father said this and it obviously stuck with him he was brought up in Roman Catholicism but as we will see, he was increasingly disillusioned with the Roman Catholic Church and with the conduct of Roman Catholic priests. One of the things that his father had instilled into him was the way that he was to treat ladies. They were to be treated with the utmost respect. One day when he was in the Catholic school, a lady missionary arrived at the school from Canada. 
I'm not sure why she came there, but she did. And Ashill Blaze had some responsibility in the school with regard to visitors. So he was introduced to this lady and he began to show her around the school and talk to her. She told him, I am a missionary. And typical Ashill Blaze style, he said, what is a missionary? He did not know what a missionary was. And so she began to explain to him that she was a servant of Jesus Christ and that she had a Bible and that she was wanting to share the gospel. Halfway through this conversation, a Roman Catholic priest associated with the school came into the room and the young Mr. Blaze had to stand back and let the priest take over. And this priest began to be rude and aggressive towards this lady from Canada and basically pushed her out of the room and dismissed her out of the school. He observed this and said to himself, why should I confess my sins to this man? He needs to confess his sins, the way that he dealt with this lady. And he was deeply upset by that. But he was troubled by it. He was horrified by it. But his concerns about Roman Catholicism were to deepen. In 1962, when he was just over 20 years of age, he emigrated to England. There were a lot of West Indian people, not only from Dominica, but particularly from Jamaica, who made the journey across uh, the Atlantic Ocean and landed in London. But it appears that he was an increasingly troubled soul. He was depressed. Stuart Olliott, who got to know him very well early on, said that he was depressed severely. The reason was, it seems, he had a question which no one had been able to answer. What am I here for? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And no one answered that question. He went to the Roman Catholic Church in East London and he asked the priest repeatedly, why are we here? The priest repeatedly fobbed him off and didn't take him seriously at all, regarded him as something of a nuisance and decided, well, you go and talk to one of the senior priests at the main Catholic church down the road, on the Mile End Road in East London. So he went to see him and asked him the same questions. Now, Ashill Blaze, being Ashill Blaze, was not content if he got fobbed off. He demanded of this priest that he give him a, an answer to his question. And the priest got so fed up with him that he kicked him out. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure, but it seems that he may have even been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church because he was regarded as something of a nuisance. Uh, 
But anyway, he was thrown out. And bear in mind that he was depressed. He had this question. And it was a burning question. And he could not find the answer. At some point in his early 20s, he picked up a Bible for the first time. Began to read it. It had been given to him by a friend. I think he was living in the same accommodation. This Englishman had been given a Bible by his mother when he left home. But he never read it and said to Ashiel Blaise, you may as well have it if you want it and you can read it. Well, he began to read it. He began to read in Matthew's Gospel. He was stunned by the first chapter, all the list of names. And then he got to see that the birth and the coming into the world of Jesus Christ was so different. And he read on and read on and got to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. And there he read, as he read through the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now he thought mammon was the devil. He didn't understand what he was reading, but he thought it was the devil. And he said to himself, well, I don't want to serve the devil. I want to serve God. And as he read on and read on, he became more and more interested in what the Bible actually had to say. Now, I'm not sure how this happened, but one day he was out in the streets in East End of London and he came into contact with Christians from the Emmaus Bible School. And they spoke to him. And uh, I, I understand that he got hold of some of their literature and did their correspondence course. And he did it very quickly. And one day there was a knock on his door and it was the principal of the Emmaus Bible School. He had seen this correspondence course and the answers that Pastor Blaise had given and he was taken aback and impressed and so he paid him a personal visit only to discover that this man had become a Christian but he wasn't attending any church. What church would he go to? The only church he'd ever known was the Roman Catholic Church and so he put him in touch with a London city mission man called Chris Frowine. Now, Chris Frowine was to become the man who ultimately, uh, eventually distributed many of Pastor Martin's cassettes uh, to us in the UK. But Chris Frowine and his wife Johanna took him to the East London Tabernacle. And there was a man there called Paul Tucker, who was the pastor. He was a remarkable man. He was an unusual preacher. I heard him only once, and I still remember the sermon. Asher Blaze had two vivid impressions. First of all, when he entered East London Tabernacle, he was a few moments late. And Paul Tucker was reading from Psalm 61 and he had reached verse 2. When my heart is overwhelmed, 
lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Here was a man who'd been depressed, and these are the first words he hears when he walks into the church. It made a deep impression upon him. And he heard a sermon, and I understand it lasted an hour and a half. That was the normal time Paul Tucker preached. And it was on the madness of the prophet. He was preaching on Balaam. He was sitting right in the front row. He said, I didn't move for 90 minutes. I was absolutely transfixed by this man and the message that he was bringing. And as he attended, he was gripped by the expository ministry and the preaching that he heard. He had been converted to Christ, largely through reading the Bible on his own. And then he was baptized in 1964, and he became a member of the East London Tabernacle. I think that Stuart Olliot was attending uh, East London Tabernacle himself, but it was a fairly large church, and he did not know Ashill Blaze at that particular point. Stuart Olliot had been a student at the London Bible College under Dr. Ernest Kevin, and he became, very soon after he finished his course, he became the pastor of a church in East London called Poplar Baptist Church. And the first time he came face to face with Ashill Blaze was when he found opposite his church premises there was a paper factory and this is the area this is east end of london this is docklands and there are a lot of industries like that and there were a lot of uh, west indian men working in this factory and he got to hear about this man who was holding bible studies on a thursday lunchtime and he was preaching he wasn't just giving a bible study he was preaching and he was insisting that the men came to hear him preach. Stuart Olliot said at his funeral, he would not take no for an answer. That was the kind of man he was very early on in his ministry. And then he discovered that this man was none other than Ashil Blaise. And his, worksmate, his workmates came to hear him preach the gospel. Stuart Ollett had to investigate. He said, I need to know who this man is. He's obviously a, a keen Christian. Uh, and he said, when I met him, there was a meeting of heart and spirit immediately. And with some other men from East London Tabernacle, they met regularly for what they called holy talk. Initially, there were five of them, and Stuart Olliot was the only Englishman among them. The five eventually became two, Stuart Olliot and Ashill Blaise. They met every week, and Stuart told me quite categorically, he had never met a man who prayed like Ashill Blaise. He said he prayed in an extraordinary manner, a vigour, an energy, a depth. And he said, I felt like an infant 
I felt as if I'd never prayed before. Now, those of you who know Pastor Blaise and have heard him lead publicly in prayer will know exactly what I mean. Asher Blaise continued to attend the East London Tabernacle. And something of his potential as an evangelist and a preacher became increasingly evident. He thought about getting theological training. Paul Tucker discouraged him from going to university uh, to study theology. He feared that it would drive biblical theology out of his system. It does appear, and I cannot totally verify this, that he did attend evening classes at the London Bible College under Dr. Ernest Kevin. But the church appointed him ultimately as an evangelist for the area, and in 1969 as an assistant minister. And at that point, Ashil Blaise consecrated himself to the ministry of the word, asking the Lord to give him 40 years of labour as a preacher. The next significant change in his life took place when Stuart Olliot invited this young man to attend the Banner of Truth Leicester Conference that was held every spring. And they sat in the front row together. At the end of one particular session, they were still sitting there uh, reflecting on what they had heard when the man who was preaching went and sat down next to Ashil Blaze. Apparently his head was toward the floor and he looked across and he saw two huge feet, later saying they're the biggest feet he'd ever seen in his life. They were the feet of Pastor Martin. Pastor Martin was the preacher on that occasion and came and sat down next to this young man and began to engage in conversation with him. As many of you know, their souls were knit together. They were as Jonathan and David. It was a bond that became a lifelong friendship and a bond that shaped both men and their respective ministries in different ways, of course. In 1972, he was now in his very early 30s. He was invited to go to New Jersey to come here and to become a co-pastor eventually with Pastor Martin. I believe that Stuart Olliot made the journey across the Atlantic and preached at his induction service here. While he was here in 1973, he returned to the UK. He married uh, Eslin and returned with her to the States, returning with his young bride. Uh, she was also in East London Tabernacle. She's very reluctant to share many of the details of that. She says she doesn't remember a great deal about it. She was a lot, a lot younger than Ashil Blaze. 
But they were to have two children. Some of you will have met them. They came over here, Glyn and Anna, Glyn, Wynn and Anastasia. But they were always known as Glyn or Glynny and Anna. But he was to stay here in New Jersey for two, three years. He was restless. He was concerned about many West Indians in East London. He was greatly missed by a circle of friends that he had made in the East London Tabernacle. And that was made worse by the fact that Paul Tucker had left the ministry at East London and had gone to Northern Ireland. And some of those friends wrote to Pastor Blaze and asked him, would he consider returning to the UK? Eventually, the church here agreed to send him to plant a church in East London, undertaking to support him financially, and this was in 1975. And that was significant as far as I was concerned, because in 1975, the church in Crawley was constituted. So we, we did not know each other at that particular point, though I was aware of the church here because I'd been a student at Westminster Seminary in the late 60s and early 70s and regularly every month would come here uh, on, on, the, on the Lord's Day because you weren't meeting here, I think it was in, in the school uh, and then the cracker box. I remember the cracker box. Anyway, that's another story. So, eventually he goes back and he was placed under the watchful eye of Pastor Stuart Olliot, who was no longer in Poplar but in Liverpool and was the pastor in Belvedere Road Church in Liverpool. And they said, we will exercise a watchful eye over them. Pastor Blaise and his wife would stay in Liverpool for two or three weeks each year and then subsequently the new group of Christians meeting in East London decided that they would draw up a church constitution. All the new prospective members were uh, interviewed by the Belvedere Road elders. Initially, this new group met in very poor premises. It was a shack, it was a boy scout hut that actually belonged to the Roman Catholic Church. They were able to rent it. It was known by some of the members as the Tin Tab. It was cold, it was damp in winter, and if it rained, you could hardly hear yourself speak because it had a corrugated iron roof and the rain just made an awful din. Undeterred by these things, Ashiel Blaze pressed on. He began to preach, he began to teach and train his growing congregation. In the early 1980s, they considered an ecclesiastical marriage between themselves and a congregation that met in Gurney Road in Stratford, Gurney Road Baptist Church. 
there was an older man, Wilfred Kurt. He had been a pastor and a missionary in India. He had returned, I think, for health reasons to the UK. He was an elderly pastor. He had an elderly congregation that was dwindling and a vastly superior building. Ashiel Blaze was, had a young, vibrant, growing church in a building that had no future and no real potential. In July 1980, they joined and under Ashil Blaise's leadership and his insight and his commitment, the church adopted the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith as the fullest expression of their faith. Now, deacons had been recognized and appointed in this growing congregation in the early years to work alongside him. But soon he became the only pastor in this new combined congregation as Wilfred Kurt retired and moved away to another part of London. I don't have a great deal of information about what happened in those years in the 80s and the early, uh, into the early 90s. But in 1989, a man called Jack Hampshire and his wife Sheila began attending Grace Baptist Church in Stratford. And subsequently, Jack Hampshire became a co-pastor with Ashiel Blaze. They were chalk and cheese. Very, very different. But they faithfully labored together until Ashel had to lay down his ministry. During the 80s and 90s, it is evident the church continued to grow, though there were, as in nearly every church that I know, they had their disappointments, they had their setbacks, but he remained a determined and persevering pastor. His ministry was increasingly appreciated beyond East London. He preached widely in the UK and developed close links with like-minded pastors uh, in churches in Trinidad, in Australia, in Holland and in Zambia in particular. In the latter case, he was influential in helping uh, and encouraging emerging Reformed Baptist churches establish themselves. He went on his first occasion with a Bible and a bunch of 1689 Confessions of Faith. And he impressed upon these men, these are men like Pastor Conrad and Bayway, uh, who has become a very prominent African uh, leader, uh, there were other men too who were like that, who are still pastoring. They were the first generation of Reformed Baptist churches in Zambia. And it was largely, I understand, it was largely Ashil Blazer's influence, saying, Brethren, you take this 1689 Confession of Faith. It is a full summary of what the Bible teaches. That's what you need to make your foundation. And they did, and they are thriving to this very day. 
Of course, he returned here to the U.S. on many occasions, returning here often for the pastors, the annual pastors conference and preaching here. He also preached at some of the uh, family conferences that some of you older people may have well attended. And he was much loved and much appreciated. He was a man of God, a man of principle, a man of integrity. You knew that you could trust this man because he was a faithful servant of Christ. His preaching was bold and clear. Earlier on this morning, I was reading about the prophet Micaiah. And I thought, what it said about the way Micaiah responded to King Ahab was true of our brother. He said, it says about Micaiah, as long as the Lord lives, what God says, that will I speak. And that, in a way, to me, sums up Ashil Blaise. If God had spoken, then that is what he, had, he would speak. That was his goal. That was his aim. He was bold. He was clear. Behind those sparkling eyes and those flashing teeth and that disarming smile, And the flashes of wit and humour that came from his lips, there was a man of steel. Steel that was forged in the furnace, shaped and moulded by the word of God. I've already alluded to his public prayers. They were those of a man who feared God. They were different from anyone else I ever heard, marked by a freshness and a distinctive spirituality. He was a preacher who often emphasized that he and his church were under the word of God. I remember attending a service in Grace Baptist Church where he was preaching. And in order to make this point, he took his Bible and balanced it on his head. If I take my hand away, it'll fall off. His didn't. He balanced it on his head and said, we are under the word, as he would distinctively say. He was not ashamed then to be called a biblicist. In the best sense of that word, he was bound to Jesus Christ, his Lord. And as his servant, his conscience was bound to the scriptures. That's what made him the man that he was. Now on Wednesday the 17th of August this year, Ashel Blaze went to be with his Lord and Saviour. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He served him. And in my estimation and the estimation of others, he was one of the finest preachers of our time with a delivery style that was as unusual as it was captivating. 
You could not fall asleep, really, under his ministry. He might spot you anyway and uh, catch you out. Now, I knew of Trinity Baptist Church, as I told you before, uh, when I was in the USA from 1968 to 1971. And I attended here whenever I could. I came to know Ashil Blaise through meeting him at a Leicester conference in the early 1980s. And I discovered that he was trying to plant and seeking to plant a church in East London. And they've been going a number of years, and that is precisely what we were seeking to do in Crawley. And from that point on, a friendship developed and deepened over the years between him and myself that lasted until his death. Let me give you one or two anecdotes about him. Because he was a decided disciple of Christ. He was preeminently a sincere, polite, upright Christian gentleman. Some of those things his father had instilled in him, and they were still evident in his life and in his conduct. At the same time, he was acutely aware of his own unworthiness and his own sins, and he gloried in the grace he had received in Jesus Christ. He was a man of vigour. He did nothing half-heartedly. In the tribute that his son Glyn paid to him at the funeral, he said Glyn could have been, a, well he was at one point, a semi-professional rugby player. And every time it was possible, his father would be there on the touchline. He didn't stand there and just watch the game. He was animated. He would be running up and down and shouting his head off, seeking to enthuse the whole team and particularly Glynn as he played rugby. But that was him. He conducted himself towards Eslin, his wife, his family, his children, the church he served, a wider circle of friends with a refreshing candour and integrity. With his smiling face and sparkling eyes, he was very proud of his Dominican Caribbean background. In one of his wittier moments, speaking to the pastors here at the conference, he drew attention to what he described as his exquisite pigmentation. Well, everybody was rolling around laughing, and of course he had us eating out of his hands from that moment on. Now as a preacher, he had his own distinctive style. I know some people who only ever heard him preach once or twice. They said, we have never forgotten that man or what he preached and the truth he proclaimed. He was an accurate and a careful exegete of the scriptures. He aimed at the hearer's hearts. 
their minds, their consciences. He would tell stories and use apt illustrations. Sometimes, and this was a criticism that some people labelled him with, that he was too theatrical in the pulpit. But if he was too theatrical, it was because he was gripped with his whole mind and body with what he was seeking to preach. He was a vigorous, self-effacing, earnest and gracious preacher. He compelled a hearing. His style, as I say, was unusual. I'll give you an illustration of this. I checked this out with Pastor Martin earlier this week when we spent a little time together. There was one occasion when he was preaching here on a, I think it was a weekday evening at the pastor's conference, he was here. He was standing back from the pulpit and he was addressing this part of the congregation. And he was in full flight. Suddenly, he was over here addressing this section of the congregation. How did he get from here to there? He jumped. He jumped. Now, because I knew him well, once it was all over, I asked him, I said, were you aware that you were here and then you were there and you jumped a couple of feet in the air? He had no idea. No idea. He was totally consumed with the message that he was preaching. That was him. On another occasion, he took a funeral in East London, which there were a large number of unbelievers present. An older man approached him after the service and commended him for no flannel. Ashley Blaze didn't know what that phrase meant. In the same way he'd asked the lady from Canada, what is a missionary? He said, what do you mean, no flannel? Well, he said, when you preached, there was no padding. There was no flurry of insignificant words, just filling in the spaces. What you spoke, you spoke clearly and plainly. No flannel. And that was Pastor Blaze. He was a no flannel preacher. He spoke the truth boldly. He spoke it winsomely. He never indulged in flattery, but exposed the false notions and the mere religious sentimentality. He was no man pleaser. Those who knew him well knew his boldness and courage. Micaiah, like he would speak out with a gospel outspokenness that took him on occasion to situations where most of us would never have gone, perhaps even endangering his own personal safety on at least one occasion. But he was marked overall by a, a kind and a generous spirit, often mingled with his wit and his humour. 
I remember him introducing a young Irish man from this pulpit at the pastor's conference. He was asked to say a little bit about him. He said very little. And then he said, he is of age, he can speak for himself. <laughs> Again, everybody just burst out laughing. But that was something of the man that he was. I prized his personal friendship for four decades. He was a very good listener. He was a wise counsellor. He graciously exposed my shortcomings and my failings when it was necessary. There were times, though, of mutual encouragement, the like of which I have never experienced before or since. He and I spent many hours together in the 1990s when both of us found ourselves, for different reasons, isolated and without too many friends. We met monthly for several hours, meeting at a halfway point. We talked together, we studied God's word together, we shared our joys, we shared our tears and sorrows, and we prayed together for prolonged periods. Those meetings continued for several years until some other men joined us and then we met regularly in his study in Leighton. One of those men was Pastor Andrew Coates who preached here, I think, was at the pastor's conference and then preached after the conference was over. He was a true friend to those who loved Christ. Pastor Jack Hampshire said of him, there was no jealousy in him of other men. Even if he differed in details and in ecclesiology, he said to one man in the Church of England, who he knew and knew well, he said, well, if you can in good conscience remain and preach the gospel there, then that is what you should do. He would never have been an Anglican himself any more than I would have been. But that was his counsel and advice. He had a large enough heart to say those kinds of things. His heart was set on defending and promoting historic biblical Christianity. He was a fine example to me and to many, many others. He was much loved. He was highly regarded and now greatly missed. I spoke to him every two or three weeks on the phone and obviously met with him on times and uh, we never spent less than an hour talking, seeking, carrying on in the same spirit that we had back in the 1990s. I miss him greatly. He was a dear friend. But now he has received his reward. We are thankful to God for every memory, memory of him. Proverbs 10, 7 says, The memory of the righteous is blessed. 
And so it is. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, as we bow in your presence, we thank you for the tie that binds us together in Christ. We thank you for the bonds that a number of us enjoyed with Ashiel Blaze. We thank you for your grace that was evident in his life, the way that you used him to promote the truth, to establish a church and to proclaim the gospel so that men and women, boys and girls were converted to Christ. And Lord, we do thank you for every memory we have of our dear friend. Lord, we pray that the things that we have learned today may be an encouragement to us, and above all else, he may continue to be that exam example for us and, a and, a, and an encouragement to us in our faith and in our labours for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, hear our prayers and continue to help us now this day that we may know your blessing and your presence and the power of your grace by your Holy Spirit as we gather to worship later now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you just please give a brief description of what the end of his life was like in terms of his sickness and such? Yeah, okay. Uh, I omitted that. Um, he was preaching in Scotland at one of their communion seasons. And if you know anything about the Scottish practice of communion, it's an annual thing, and there are four or three or four sermons Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and then on Monday. And he was often asked to go and preach on these occasions. I'm not sure where he was, which communion season it was, in what part of Scotland. But he was preaching, and I think it was about, about the third sermon he was preaching, and suddenly he stopped and realised he could not remember what he had just said and he could not remember the first two sermons that he had preached he managed to complete the third sermon and he managed to preach a fourth and a fifth if that was the case sermon but he decided realizing that his memory had failed him on that occasion he said to himself ashiel blaze that is the end you are no longer going to publicly preach. Now he began to suffer uh, an increasing dementia, which became very prominent in the latter days. Uh, in the latter days, the last six months of his life, I was unable to talk to him on the telephone. But it wasn't dementia that was his real problem. He died of heart failure. There was a time when 
he went out for the day with all of his family. They went to a park in Kent and they were running around playing games and some of the younger children went off to play on the swings and the roundabouts and uh, so on. And he said, I will lie down and have a rest. And he fell asleep on the grass. And when he woke up, he could not move. He couldn't get up. They had to call an ambulance. They had to take him to hospital. And uh, eventually they transferred him back to East London. And I remember visiting him on one occasion in the East London hospital. And he was in a room, maybe about 20 by 20 in a ward, small ward. And he was in one corner and he walked towards the other corner. It took him 45 minutes. And every step was absolute agony for him. No one ever knew. The doctors could not find out what was wrong with him. They called him their mystery man. It may have been a virus, but it affected his heart. And increasingly his heart began to provide problems. He was a fit man, he would go walking every day, but his walks got shorter and shorter. And then of course he couldn't remember his way home, so his wife Eslin would go with him. But in the last months of his life he wasn't able to leave the house at all. And eventually his heart gave way. He had a, a heart disease and that was what ushered him into the presence of his saviour. But he was cheerful throughout all of that. He never complained. As Lynn said that to me, he never complained. He was content. He was happy. He knew that his days were coming to an end and he entrusted himself to Christ.